This morning I'd like to uh, share with you some of my reflections on ABC's presentation of the day after, not because I think my uh, thoughts have any more uh, profundity than uh, anyone else's, but I would like to help you think through that uh, television program and the implications of it from a Christian standpoint. There are Christians who have ideas, and then there are Christian ideas. And uh, the two are not uh, necessarily uh, coterminous. They're not the same. What, uh, what we need to do is, is think through everything that happens in human affairs from the standpoint of Scripture and come to uh, a Christian understanding of these things. And I think that uh, film simply points up the need to to aggressively uh, address in our own thinking and then in our speaking some of the, uh, some of the concerns that were expressed there. Uh, just a couple of things. I, I'm going to elaborate on this in a, in a column this week, but I, just a couple of things occur to me. First, uh, the, uh, the television program certainly magnified what I think is an apocalyptic mood in the world today. <laughs> Uh, everyone's talking about it. There's this sense of foreboding. There's a great ominous storm cloud off in the, in the east or the north, and uh, everyone is concerned about it. It's like the blue northers that used to, uh, used to strike uh, the state of Texas when I lived there. The woods would get quiet, the birds would stop singing, the squirrels would uh, stop chattering, and there was this foreboding sense of something about to happen. Uh, it's been going on now for 30 years or so, and back in the 60s, Joan Baez was singing about uh, an age of no tomorrows, and Bob Dylan was describing the Titanic sailing at dawn and that sort of thing. There, there's been this sense that uh, something very frightening lies ahead, but it's certainly been magnified and enhanced recently as the United States and the USSR play this game of international chicken. and. Uh, rattle their nuclear sabers and and make noises like they're going to destroy each other. And I think uh, all of us are getting a little bit uh, nervous and apprehensive. It's a it's a pervasive mood. The second thing that struck me about about that uh, film is that Christians were depicted throughout as sort of an inert element in society. They really had nothing to say. Now, whether that was by design or not, uh, I, I can't say. I can't judge the motives of the producers, but they certainly uh, were not any sort of positive force in the film. If you remember the, the picture of a, this abject, kind of pitiable group of Christians that were gathered around this priest as he read Revelation 9, there was just no answer there. The same despair that you saw written on everyone else's face was on theirs as well. This is the end of the world. There's no hope. And what might be even more telling is the fact that, uh, that there was no Christian spokesman, or at least no spokesman for Christian thinking, on the panel that, that followed up. My question is, why weren't people like R.C. Sproul and Billy Graham and Francis Schaeffer and others... Uh, present there. Well, that's because the, the media apparently do not think that Christians have anything to say on this subject. Now, some of those men may have been Christians. I, I, I don't want to make that kind of judgment. But 
There was nothing said from the standpoint of Christian thinking about the issue. Christians were nowhere. They had nothing to say about the issue. And that, of course, is totally erroneous. We have a lot to say. And we, and we get what we have to say from Scripture. Now, there are a lot of places that we could turn, but uh, for this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, which always starts everyone's pulse to racing. <clears throat> it's like speaking on sex. Everybody wakes up. <laughs> but uh, I warn you, the, the approach that I'm going to take to chapter 6 and 7 may be a little different from anything that you've heard before. And I simply ask you to consider it and study it on your own. Again, I'm not the authority. This is the authority. And I want you to take a good, good hard look at the scriptures yourself. See if this is so. Now, Revelation is a very, very difficult book to interpret. If somebody tells you that they have the last word on the book of Revelation, uh, go find another Bible teacher to listen to this is a book that has to be approached with a great deal of humility and agnosticism, uh, the right kind of agnosticism. We simply don't know everything there is to know about this book. We've lost the key to it. Uh, John does not publish a glossary of terms by which we can interpret all the symbols. Much of it can be understood by uh, reading the Old Testament and understand the, the way these symbols were used there, but there's still some, some portions of Revelation that I don't think anyone understands very well. So we have to be very careful in interpreting this book. Uh, the first time you read through this book, you probably wondered, what in the world do we have here? Uh, scarlet women and red uh, beasts that look like something out of uh, Maurice Sendek's Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, stars named Wormwood that fall out of the sky and poison a third of the earth and all sorts of strange goings on and happenings. And, and you wonder, what, what is this book? Well, it's a type of literature that was very well known in the first century. We find this type of literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other Jewish writings. Uh, there are examples of it in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel and Daniel, or apocalyptic writings, that's the term that we use. That's our term, I don't know what they called it, but uh, we take our, uh, our title or our uh, term for these books from the first verse of the book of Revelation. This book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, and we get our, our word apocalyptic from this word. Uh, from this term. It means unveiling. And you say, now that's an odd term to use to describe the book of Revelation because it's anything but an unveiling. It just confuses me. But actually, it is that. And for myself, I don't think God intends us to understand every detail in the book. It will be understood mainly by those who are going through the events described here. But it is an unveiling in the sense that it, in, 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 we get the big picture. It, it draws back the veil so that we can see behind the scenes. The curtain goes up and we see something that no one else sees. Behind all the events that are happening here on the earth is a cosmic drama that's being played out. A spiritual struggle in heavenly places. The results of which we can affect. 
That's really the message of the book of Revelation. There, there are things going on here on the earth that are only explainable in terms of what's going on in the unseen world of the spirit. And uh, what we say and what we do can affect the outcome of that struggle. And so it gives us hope and it gives us something to do when we're faced with the, uh, with the apocalypse. Now, um, let, uh, I don't know how much time. Does, I spent too much time in the first service uh, in the preamble and didn't even get to finish the message. So uh, that's a problem. Let me just say this, that, uh, that uh, the book of Revelation is uh, organized around the little phrase, in the spirit. And in chapter 1, we read that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he saw the risen Lord uh, in all of his glory. And the Lord then reveals certain things about seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Seven churches that I think represent the state of the church throughout uh, all ages. In other words, you can find examples of those kinds of churches everywhere in the world today. It's not progressive history, but it's simply a revelation of the state of things in the church here on earth. And then in chapter 4, the scene shifts. And uh, John says in verse 2, he was in the spirit and Behold a throne. He's taken up into heaven. He sees a door open, and he's taken through this door into heaven. And now the perspective shifts from the earth and the churches on the earth to this great struggle that's going on in heavenly places, the spiritual struggle that, uh, that determines what happens here on, on earth. And what he sees is a, I'm not going to take time to read this, but he sees, a, sees God on the throne. And uh, he's not pacing the floor, he's not gnawing his knuckles, he's not uh, tearing his hair and wondering about the outcome of, of human history. As a matter of fact, he's described as uh, residing on a sea of glass. There are no waves in heaven. Nobody's ruffled. Nobody is shook. No one is upset. There's poise and there's peace and there's calm because everything is under control. Man is not running amok. He's under God's control. Now that John sees from uh, chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, he observes that, uh, that the Lord, seated on the throne, has a book in his hand. Well, we don't know exactly what that book looked like. It might have been a scroll. It might have been a book like this, because they did have books like this with leather covers back in those days. But in any case, it was sealed along the edge with seven seals, which no one could open. John says there is this lamentable fact in verse 3 that no one is worthy. He, he heard someone ask the question in verse 2, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? But no one was worthy. Now we find out as we read through the book of Revelation that the, that the book is the story of, of human history to its consummation. I think it describes all the events between the first and second coming of Christ. That's not accurate. Not all the events. But the important forces that are at work in human history that affect the events of our lives from, from the, the period between the first and the second comings of Christ, what the New Testament calls the, the last days, this inner advent period between Christ's first and second coming. What this book describes is the forces that are at work that generate the historical events that drive human history to its consummation. History is headed someplace. We Christians don't believe that, that history is cyclical. It's not, we're not going around in circles. We're moving toward a consummation of all history, which is the coming in of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his order on earth, 
And uh, that's when he's going to set everything right. And the question is raised now, who in the world is, is worthy to set in motion the forces that will bring this about? And uh, John breaks down and starts to weep because there's no one who can, who can open the seals. No one is worthy. Judging by some of the comments that have been made about John F. Kennedy this past week, uh, he would be the only one in human history worthy to open the scrolls. <laughs> However, it is not John F. Kennedy who opens the seals. It is the lion. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. And John begins to look for this, this regal character who will make his entrance. And he observes in a, sort of an out-of-the-way place, not a lion, but a, a lamb. A lion who is a lamb. I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, and so forth. And, and, and what follows is a description of our Lord in his... Ministry of sacrificial love, our gentle, loving, sacrificing Lord Jesus, who is declared to be the only one worthy. In verse 9, they sing a new song saying, <coughs> Excuse me, you are worthy to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. By Jesus' sacrifice of himself, he solved the human dilemma of sin and guilt and death. And he set us free. You know, it's, it's sin and death that has uh, repeatedly distorted in human history and, and, and ruined life for us, made us miserable, created all the problems that we have to face. And here's someone who has solved the problem of human existence, the problems of sin and guilt and death, and therefore he's worthy to set in motion these, uh, these forces that will bring about the end. And then John sees him in verse 6, beginning to open the seals. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. Now I want you to reflect on that for a moment because it indicates the, the one who controls human history. Human history is not in the control of men. It's not in the control of, of political leaders, military leaders. It's in control of the Lamb. Our Lord is the Lord of history. He controls things. He's the invisible governor of, of human history. And he's the one who begins to open these seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! Now, if you have a King James, it says, come and see. Some of the later texts added that as though it was addressed to John. John is addressed to come and, and see what, uh, what is occurring. But the come is addressed to the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And again, it's an indication that, that it's God and angelic forces that are in control of human history when these terrible agencies of destruction are unleashed upon Upon uh, the human race, it's, it's God who controls these things, who removes the restraints. They can only go so far. Human history is not out of control. It's God who permits these forces to play on, on the earth. 
Verse 2, um, John says, I looked and behold a white horse, and one who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. The bow symbolizes military power. It does throughout the Old Testament. And a crown is a symbol of, of a victor, one who has won. He was given a bow and a crown, and he went out conquering and, and to conquer. Now, there have been a lot of attempts to identify this uh, first of the four horsemen with some specific character in history, but I think in general this is simply a description of, of the process of imperialism, the, the hunger that nations have to possess other lands and people and natural resources and to aggrandize themselves by grabbing up land wherever they, they can. And so this is a picture of, of imperialism at, it, at its very worst. And, and God himself unleashes this, this force in the world. Isn't that interesting? Tells me that the, the preservation of national boundaries is not the highest good. You see that? Now, verse 3 then describes the breaking of the second seal, which the Lamb affects when he broke the second seal. I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And this is again is addressed to the horse. Another red horse went out. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, uh, it was granted to take peace away from the earth. That men should slay one another with a great sword, uh, a hundred megaton sword, was given to him. Now, there's nothing good about war. It's a terrible thing to glamorize war. It's ugly. Awful. It, it's it's bestial. It, it, it's probably the best indication of the state of, of the human heart that we would would destroy one another for political uh, gains. Uh, God help us if we're warmongers and we love war and live for it. We had a number of Marines here last uh, Thursday for the Thanksgiving service that were uh, involved in cold weather training out in the, in the desert. And I talked for a while afterwards to the captain who was leading the group, and he, he made the comment, this suit is not a suit of war, it's a suit of peace. And uh, perhaps you could disagree, but, but his point of view was that war is not a good thing, and, and it's only justifiable in, in the pursuit of, of peace. War is, is never uh, a high and holy and good thing to be pursued for its sake, but yet the interesting thing is that uh, our Lord takes his hands off of man, he looses the restraints and he lets them use their, their weapons against one another to slay one another and to take peace away from the earth. And he's responsible. You see that? So again, the preservation of peace is not the highest good. If it were, God would see to it that we always live in peace. So apparently he has another purpose. He may permit war for some reason, which, which we shall see in a moment. Uh, the third seal is broken. And that description comes in verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. That's a universal symbol, always has been, for a famine and for human want. And, and need and hunger, economic distress. 
And they heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage back then. A quart of wheat was a living, uh, and that's the amount of food that you needed to sustain yourself for one day. So this is a bare subsistence level for the working man. He works all day to make enough food to feed himself for the next day. And three quarts of barley for a denarius, that's coarser fare. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Uh, someone uh, has suggested that that means that there will be an increase in drunk driving toward the end of, <laughs> of the age, but that's really not what he's saying. It seems to me that uh, he's describing what often happens in an inflationary economy. The uh, rich get rich and the poor get poorer. That those who are, who are working for a living often can barely get by, and yet the luxuries of life are available to the few. The interesting thing to me about this description of, of an economy that's in an imbalance, in a state of imbalance, is that it is God who controls the market. You see that? There is a voice who comes out of the center of the 24 elders, and if you go back to chapter 24, the only person in the center of the 24 elders is the person sitting on the throne. It's God who establishes the principles by which the market operates. I have a good friend who, who has a, a, a degree in economics from Stanford University, and he's been taught by some of the leading economists in the world. They brought in people from Harvard Business School and from Europe and other places to instruct these young men. I asked him once, you know, can you explain economics to me? And he said, no. He said, no one can. It's all theory. No one can explain why things get into a state of imbalance. And, and I have to... I have to say from this verse that this is a case of uh, cosmic uh, price fixing. <laughs> it's God who establishes these, these principles that fuel the market and drive it. Why? Well, because there is some greater good to be gained than prosperity. Prosperity is not the highest good. You and I have gone through a, a three-year period when our state... In fact, the whole United States, the whole world was in a period of economic recession. No one could adequately explain why that happened. No one can really explain why we've come out of it now, except that God is somehow working behind the scenes to bring about a period of prosperity. But what happened during that period of, of difficulty? Well, a lot of people came to Christ. A lot of people discovered that things don't matter any longer, that they don't really satisfy so that, that our own prosperity, our own ease and affluence are not the highest good. you see that? We've been raised as Christians to believe that what really matters is peace and prosperity and affluence. And that's a sign of Christian blessing. And we need to be thankful if those things come our way. But that's not a right that we have. And God has the right to plunge us into war or plunge us into economic distress if that will serve some higher good. Now, I don't know any other way to read this passage. It's God who controls these, these forces. Verses 7 and 8. When he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, a sort of a yellowish-green, macabre-looking uh, nag. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. I suppose uh, Death is the name of the horseman, and 
and the hearse is what was following him. And uh, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And I have to say again, it is the angel who is the agent of God's sovereign control who releases this horse to bring about death on the earth. And I can only conclude that the preservation of human life is not the highest good. There are many people who say that's a Christian tenet. The highest good is the preservation of human life. And I have to say, no, that's not so. If that were so, Christ would never have gone to the cross. And uh, Christians would not have been martyred. And as a matter of fact, death would never occur. Uh, this fine young stockbroker who, uh, who knows his way around the outdoors goes off to uh, hunt ducks and he never comes back. Or uh, your, your wife goes out to the parking lot to uh, get into her car and, and she's slain by some insane gunman for no reason. Or your children are, are struck down uh, by some sickness and, and their, their life is taken. These things go on all around us all the time. And we say, why doesn't God put a stop to all of this? Well, as I read this passage, it's because the preservation of human life is not the highest good. There may be some higher purpose that God has in mind. Now, let's read on. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, underneath the altar, the uh, souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. The uh, base of the altar was where the blood of the slain animals was uh, poured and this is a picture of the pouring out of the life uh, by souls. He means lives. Uh, the blood of, of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony about Jesus, which they had maintained. These are Christian martyrs who have given up their lives for the cause of Christ. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, O Master, the one who's in control, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The, the expression, dwell, those who dwell on the earth, is a, is a phrase that's used throughout the book of Revelation to refer to a particular moral class of people, those that follow the beast, those that have the mark of 666, uh, who have bought the lie that, that man is everything that, that matters. And uh, they're told, they were each given a white robe, which is a sign of their own personal righteousness. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And you see, he's, saying, he's just magnifying this, elaborating this idea that the preservation of human life is not the highest good and the pre preservation of the Christian's human life is not the highest good. It's a fact throughout history that, that the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. It's it's from their martyrdom that the church has sprang into being. And it may be from time to time God's will for him to take a Christian's life in order to accomplish some greater good. The life of Jim Elliot, the life of Chester Bitterman, the life of, of hundreds of Christians who died in Uganda or in North Korea or in China or in Angola or in other places where, where Christians have been persecuted. 
You know, there's this odd idea, simply because we've been raised in the West and we're, we've been exempt from persecution, that somehow it's our right to expect exemption from persecution. But that's not a right we have. The preservation of our life is not the highest good. Uh, all through history, God has seen fit for various reasons to take the life of Christians in order to bring about the extension of, of the kingdom of God. I was just reading a, a few weeks ago of an incident that took place in the latter part of the second century when a whole uh, church uh, in the Roman Empire was marched down to the banks of the Tiber River and marched into the river and forced to stand with, up to their necks in water, men, women, small children. And they were told if they, if they offered sacrifice to Caesar, they could, they could walk out. It was wintertime, and, and they refused to, to step out of the river. And they held each other up, and they prayed, and they sang, and they quoted scripture to each other until one by one they sank under the, under the water of the, of the Tiber as they uh, succumbed to hypothermia, and, and they perished. But uh, the same historian tells us that uh, a number of these tough old Roman soldiers who were forced to carry out this, uh, this execution uh, stripped off their armor and, and walked into the river to perish with them. And uh, I ask, what, what's better, the preservation of our human life or the preservation of the spiritual life of someone else? And God clearly has some higher good in view. He may, in fact, and he certainly has in history, take the life of members of his church in order to accomplish some, some greater end. And then in verses 12 through 17, there is the, the final, not the final, but the sixth seal that's open. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is typical um, Semitic hyperbole. They love to speak in, to, to use exaggeration for emphasis in the, in the uh, Near East, still do today. And he's not describing uh, the literal breakup of planets and the earth and that sort of thing. He's rather describing the, the breakup of everything that we count to be stable. Uh, you, you even find that so in the Old Testament, the, the fall of Babylon in, in Isaiah 13. It's described in just this way. When the Persians invaded Babylon and, and the city of Babylon fell, the moon was turned into blood, the sun ceased to give forth its light, the stars fell out of the sky, and the same sort of description that you have here is used there. And we know that didn't happen when Babylon fell. It's simply a symbol of the breakup of everything that we count on, everything that's stable, the educational institutions, the legal institutions, the family the social institutions that have undergirded society throughout our history, when all these things begin to break up, then, and he says, the kings of the earth, the nobles, the uh, leaders, our president, others who are in positions of political authority, and the great men, the influential men, the thinkers, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, the intellectuals, the sociologists, the economists, uh, and the commanders, the military uh, commanders, and the rich, 
and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, what is the wrath of the Lamb but God taking his hands off of us and letting us make a mess of things until we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we have no means for solving the human problems that we have to face. And that is precisely where we are today. That panel that was gathered uh, to discuss the day after represents uh, the the thinkers of, of our age, men who were very knowledgeable. And they didn't have any answers, basically. Some of them had some good suggestions, but they were making statements uh, like this, you know, in 10 to 15 years we'll do so-and-so, if we have 10 to 15 years. There were no real concrete suggestions that uh, everyone felt was workable. And I think that's what we're seeing around us today. This is, we're, we're seeing the wrath of the Lamb poured out. God has let man have his day. He said, in effect, if, if, I love you enough that I'll let you have what you want. If, if you want to tinker around with the elements, if you want to uh, act apart from, from my leadership, I'll, I'll let you do it. And, and we've just put ourselves into a cul-de-sac from which there is no way out. We're like the sorcerer's apprentice who plays around with the elements, creates something whose destructive capability is immense and which he cannot control. And that's exactly what's happened. And no one knows what to do. We've come to the place that John describes where the question is asked in verse 17. Who is able to stand? Now, the answer to that question is found in, in chapter 7. And I don't have time to elaborate on it. I'm sure that many of you coming from a little different uh, tradition of, of biblical interpretation may disagree with me. And I don't have time to defend my particular interpretation of chapter 7. But let me tell you what I think chapter 7 is saying. Because it doesn't make any difference whether we're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whether you think that there is a sharp distinction between Israel and the church or you think that the church is simply a the new Israel or, or whatever. The, the, the end result is the same. All right? So let's, let's don't quibble over how we interpret the passage in its details. Let's get the big picture. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on, it, on any tree. The uh, divine director says, Cut. Stop. And uh, these angels, for a moment, restrain all these agencies that are at work to uh, bring man to the end of himself. And uh, then uh, John says he uh, saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that is, from the east, where there is hope. Having the seal of the living God, a seal in those days was a mark of ownership. They had a signet ring, which they stamped on letters and and jugs and all sorts of things just to indicate that they owned that particular article. Having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants 
the servants of God on their foreheads. By foreheads, he means the, the mind and the heart and the attitudes of the servants of God. This is not literally a stamp on your forehead any more than 666 in the 14th chapter of Revelation is a literal uh, number. It's not intent. You know, we don't need to worry about barcodes and, and telephone numbers that have 666 in them. It has nothing whatever to do with, with this issue. 666 is a symbolic number. Six is the number of man. Six repeated three times is man elevated to the position of God. Whenever you see a number a triplicate, in triplicate in the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a picture of deity. So it's man elevated to the position of God. It's humanism. That's all it is. And uh, no one goes around and stamps us on the head and on the hands with a literal stamp. We mustn't fall into that kind of literalism when we, when we interpret the book. It's rather an attitude of heart. It's possible to, you know, avoid the stamp and, and pick up the idea that man is everything, that man is what matters, that God doesn't matter at all. It's humanism. And uh, the book of Revelation says that during this uh, period there will be folks who are dwellers on the earth who pick up the sign of 666. They, are, they, you know, they think that man is the measure of all things. In contrast to those, there's another group that he, he says are sealed and on their forehead, the same place that the dwellers on the earth have the 666 stamp, uh, with the seal of God, which is the mark of his ownership. The, the, the same group is described in Revelation 14 as following the Lamb wherever he goes. A great picture of what it means to be a Christian. Just, you know, just wander along after the Lamb and follow him. Now, John goes on to describe this group who received the seal. And here's where... Some of you will part company with me. Uh, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, and so forth. Twelve in the book of Revelation, I believe, is the number of God's people. Twelve squared would be the complete number of God's people. One thousand in the book of Revelation and all the apocalyptic literature is a symbol of completeness. So I think this is a symbolic number for the complete number of the household of God. I don't think we're to think of it as a precise number, exactly 144,000, but rather a symbolic number describing all of those that God's going to gather in. And the Israelites here are the people of God, which today I would take to be both Jew and Gentile. All of those that have been gathered into Christ's body. We are the people of God today. We are the Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians 6. We are the seed of Abraham. We are the true circumcision. Can you imagine a Jew saying that of a Gentile? We are the true circumcision, he said. We're Jews. And uh, uh, James describes us as the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. Peter says that, uses all the terms, most of the terms that are used for Israel, a holy people, a nation of priests, uh, God's own people, and applies them to us. So that I think what's being described here symbolically is the church. The whole number of the people of God that are gathered in here on earth. You know, the, the action, the action uh, it, it comes to an end and we shift our scene to what's going on here on the earth. And while all hell is breaking loose, God is sealing certain people for himself. 
and, and, and drawing them in. And there's another description of this same group given in verses 9 and following. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And uh, one of the elders says to uh, John in verse 13, Who are these? John says, Beats me. You're the interpreting angel. You tell me. Who are these? And uh, the angel says, These are the ones who have come out of great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I take it that that's the purpose for which all of these other events uh, occur. The highest good is not the preservation of our national prosperity or our affluence or our peace or the preservation of human life. But the highest good is the extension of the kingdom of God. It's seeing people brought into relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the only thing that matters. But that matters more than anything else in the world. And I, I do believe that we as Christians need to be addressing the, the problems of our society. I do think we have what writers today are describing as a cultural mandate. We need to be speaking to our culture about the arms race. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. That's something you've got to decide, given the information that you have, and, and pursue your own political uh, uh, dictates and you know the things that, that you, you are convinced are right and proper for you to do in order to bring about peace. But ultimately, the highest good is the development of, of Christian character, uh, going from glory to glory, as Paul puts it, he says, we all, as, uh, with, a, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a glass that is intently looking at the face of Jesus, are being changed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. That means we need to cooperate with the sanctifying activity of the Holy Spirit, whose, whose purpose is to make us more and more like Christ. So we need to be exhibiting the character of Christ wherever we do, and we need to be making proclamation of the good news. That's the only hope that this world has. And I don't know what's going to happen two years, five years, ten years down, down the stream. We may find ourselves in the, in the scene very much like uh, the, the, the horrific things that we saw on the day after, just struggling to try to stay alive. I don't know. There are no guarantees that God will save us from that sort of, that sort of uh, destiny our faith. But I do know that in that situation, we can have poise, we can be peaceful, we can be hopeful, we don't have to give way to despair, we can live out the life of Christ and be godly and righteous men and women and boys and girls, and we can proclaim the good news that Christ has come, the Lamb has paid for our sin, that we do not need to be uh, to fear the past or the future. And death is simply a change of location, which Paul says is far better. You know why most people are panicked about the arms race? 
It is not because nuclear warfare is any more is a greater moral outrage. I really don't believe it is. Uh, if you think back through history, a siege was probably the most uh, terrible form of warfare to live live through. You you just literally starve people to death, men, women, and children. What gets to them is the fear of death. You know, it's not something that's happening between Iran and Iraq and. It's not one of the 42 or 43 wars that Ted Koppel referred to that's over there. It could happen here. And that's what panics people. But we're not to panic. We're not to give way to fear. We're to be full of hope and, and, and peace and poise and grace sustained by, by His strength. Now let me uh, refer you to one more passage and then I'm... And through. Turn to Luke 21. I personally think that the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is found in three places in the, in the uh, Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, it's found in Matthew 24, in Luke 21, and Mark 13. Basically, the argument throughout is the same. It's the evangelist's uh, report of Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives. And uh, I've chosen Luke's... Uh, Description of this discourse, but I could have could have chosen any of them. Luke twenty one nine. Jesus says, When you hear of wars and disturbances, even nuclear wars, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's the white horse. The the white horse who goes out to, to conquer. And there will be great earthquakes, things beyond our control that shake us up, that destroy our homes and and our means of livelihood. And in various places, plagues and, and famines. That's the black horse that, that goes out to uh, strike the grain. And, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. It will lead to witness. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated on account of my name, and yet not one hair of your head will perish. I love that phrase. Do you see what he's saying? You're going to be hounded and persecuted and hurt and you'll be hurt to death they will kill you but not one hair of your head will perish in other words they'll kill you but they can't really hurt you and in the meantime give witness announce the good news see that that, that's why the lord is probably leaving us around Uh, he could very easily take us the moment we're converted but he has something to do to us that matters for eternity and he has something to do through us that matters throughout eternity and we need to be about the business of fulfilling our task and not give way to anxiety and fear and 
and frustration and despair. We have hope. We have a word to announce to the world. Uh, some of you may have noticed that uh, the closing theme of the uh, day after was a hymn. Did any of you pick that up? Uh, it was introduced so subtly that I'm sure a lot of people didn't, uh, didn't notice it. And uh, I don't know if they were mocking Christians or not. I, I really have no, uh, no understanding of their, of their motives or why they, they uh, chose this particular theme. But while the credits were showing, they were playing the, the music to how firm a foundation. And that's the song we sang just a moment ago, and I want to refresh your thinking. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. That's what we've been hearing from today. Our faith is based on his word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. It may kill you, but it won't hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endanger to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's the word of hope and comfort that we have in this nuclear age. Let's uh, pray. Father, forgive us for forgetting but we know to be true that you are the one who's in control of history. And though we're tempted to, to fret and give way to fear, we, uh, we know that you're here to strengthen us and to give us hope and a reason for living, which far surpasses mere accumulation of wealth or power or prestige in this world, but which gives us an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. And we know that, after all, that's, that's what really matters. Help us to keep our mind right. Help us to keep our thoughts controlled by your word. And if things do get worse, Lord, we, we ask for a greater supply of your grace to sustain us. Thank you for your provision. In Jesus' name, amen.